step into the mic today. You know the family, Chris Miles, TJ. We have uh, the newest member to our family, Jesse Washington. And I say he's family because he's the author of I Came as a Shadow, the autobiography of John Thompson. Jesse, I think we got to let you know the info on, on what this means to us as a community, as a group. Uh, for this podcast, step into the mic. You know, Ron Thompson, uh, I worked with him at covering the Washington Wizards. He's family, you know, so to have you on the show to, to talk about family, this is a, a big deal for us. So we thank you for, for making the time with Big John passing uh, late in 2020. You know, his legacy as a head coach is cemented. We know what he is, right? Just a legend as a national champion, first African-American coach to do so. But he was so much more. Um, can you explain how hard it was to try to encompass that and put that into a book that, yeah, here are the accomplishments, but that doesn't tell a story? It was tough, especially at the beginning. And I think it was tough for Coach, too. And he knew that he wanted to tell his story. But how, you know, where do you start? How do we get into it? You know, these are some of the things with the that we wrestled with at the beginning. And, and a lot of people have asked me, did you feel pressure with the book? And the only pressure was at the beginning when you're setting out on this task and you're like, can I really do this man justice? Can I do his legacy justice? Like that's a big responsibility. But once we got into it, basically the reason why we were able to go above and beyond just his success on the basketball court and get into the more of the meanings, because he told me straight from the jump, this is not a book about basketball. He's talking about all the things that are important to him beyond basketball, all the things about life, about education, about uplifting black people, about his love for his community and his community's love for him. And he loved Washington, D.C., basically spent almost his entire life in the district. And so those are the things that were important to him. And that's why his book is about more than what he did on the court. I mean, TJ knows this, full disclosure. I'm originally a New York person, right? And we were joking about just the legacy of John Thompson. Like, everyone in D.C. knows how big he was at Georgetown as a D.C. guy. But when that movie movie above the rim came out and Kyle Watson hit the shot. He's like, I'm at Georgetown. It wasn't about being a pro. It was about being a player at Georgetown and that legacy and how true it was to the culture in that time and what it encompassed in Allen Iverson. How big was that then? And did Coach Thompson know that he was such a father figure to an entire generation? He did know, and he felt that responsibility. You know, he got to Georgetown in 1972, and he says in his book, I knew I had to win in order to give other Black coaches opportunities. I knew that if I won, other Black people would just get opportunities, period, at universities. More Black students would get to come here who didn't play basketball. More Black people would get jobs in corporate America just because they could see an example of a Black man leading with his mind in a successful fashion. You know, but what he represented to the culture was so important. And just with the AI, like uh, Georgetown Hoya's uh, basketball team almost broke the internet the other day because they re-released the Kente cloth unis that Iverson wore. And Coach Thompson did that specifically. I mean, he put Kente cloth on the uniform, bro. Plus they had the 11s. I mean, come on now. Um, I've heard a rumor or I've seen in the corners of the internet that there are Kente cloth Jordan 11s somewhere out there so <laughs> like can you imagine what you know so uh but you know really the connection to the culture came before that and in the early 80s when georgetown first got rolling and pat ewing came there and they were they were right on the cusp of being one of the best teams in the country and then ewing got there and it was it was curtains for everybody 
But at that time, man, that's when hip hop was first developing. And so Georgetown really like led the culture because they had the same, they set an archetype for the hip hop attitude. We on you, we in your face, pressure defense, but we about that business. We winning, we're disciplined, we're getting it done. We're not taking no prisoners. And coach is very specific in his book. I was not gonna apologize for anything. If you had a problem with what I was doing, I knew I was good. So you, that's your problem over there. Like that whole attitude was hip hop. And we saw that, you know, I'm a little older than y'all. We saw that and just absorbed that into hip hop culture. Plus they had the ill Nikes, the gray and blue with the dunks with the Hoyas on the heel, man. That was like, that was gold in the hood. So, I mean, so much influence on the culture. It's amazing. So I got to ask Jesse, you know, you mentioned all of the, the, the iconic things about Georgetown and what made them so special. You know, I'm intrigued just by the name and the title of your book. So, you know, I came as a shadow. I'm already like, whoa, you know, so, you know, break it down for us. What is the meaning behind the title? Thanks for asking, man. I mean, the title still gives me chills sometimes when I think about it. So um, first of all, the idea for the title was, was suggested by coach's daughter, Tiffany Thompson. She's the one who came up with it, but there is a story behind it. So shout to Tiffany. Thank you for that. Um, so we just finished talking about how coach represented hip hop and was, was in on you and aggressive and assertive and all that. But we're sitting around talking, you know, for the book one day, and then he just launches into this poem and recites it. And the poem starts like this. I came as a shadow. I stand now a light. The depth of my darkness transfigures your night. And coach went on and recited the whole poem. And I was like, whoa, okay. Hmm. And it was, this was relatively early in our discussion. So coach, you know, even though he's this, has this public perception, he's over here reciting poetry, like off the top of his head, that doesn't fit with the narrative of who John Thompson was. And as he read the poem to me, and then he said that his uncle Louis Grandison Alexander was a figure in the Harlem Renaissance, a contemporary of uh, all of these type Harlem stand-up a contemporary of Langston Hughes and County Cullen and all these people. And he had written that poem. And Coach Thompson said, my uncle Lewis was the first black person I saw who was praised for using his mind. Because when Coach grew up in the 40s and 50s under Jim Crow segregation in Washington and, and segregation in his father's hometown of Southern Maryland, he didn't see anybody but athletes being celebrated for doing anything positive. It was Joe Lewis, you know, it was Jackie Robinson, but it was never someone who was a thinker. Coach said, I grew up in the Frederick Douglass projects, but didn't know who Frederick Douglass was. You know, so when he saw this black man being praised for intellectual accomplishments, it really stuck with him. And more than that, the poem is about how this shadow sort of transcends and uplifts everybody. And I was like, wait a minute, coach, do you identify with that shadow? And he said, you're MF and right, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that is where the title of the book comes from. I came as a shadow. That's fantastic. So we know about the iconic, you know, uh, moments in coach's career just from, you know, the from memory. You know, we know about him walking off in protest of Proposition 48. You know, we know and we've read about the stories with him having the face-to-face -face meeting, calling in Rayful Edmonds to say, you know, to have a conversation with this, you know, kingpin, drug kingpin in the D.C. area. Um, what is in this book outside of what you just talked about is a part of his history and his legacy that's equally as iconic that we don't know about. Man, 
Thank you for asking because coach was very clear. He wanted people to know why he did the things he did and who influenced him. And in short, some of his primary and earliest influences were strong black women, mm. starting with his mother. I didn't know anything about his mother. His mother went to Dunbar in DC and went to college and got a, got a degree as a teacher, but due to segregation could not teach and had to clean houses for a living. And she and his father who could not read Coach Thompson's father had to go to work from an early age down in Southern Maryland and never got to go to school and, and could not read or write. So these are his primary influences. But then when Coach Thompson was in the fifth grade, he had some sort of reading disability and he could not read. Now, his older sisters could read. His mom tried to help him read, but he had a, it was a disability. And he was expelled from his school because the nuns at his Catholic school thought that he was unteachable. So imagine someone as brilliant as John Thompson being thought of as, and this is the word they unfortunately use then, retarded. But he went to a public school in D.C. and a teacher there by the name of Sametta Wallace Jackson said, oh, you're not stupid. You just can't read. Let's get you some help. And coach said she saved my life at that moment. So you have influences like Sametta Wallace Jackson, another black woman, Dr. Anita Hughes, who supervised his master's degree program at the University of the District of Columbia. So, yes, Coach John Thompson had a master's degree in counseling and guidance, which he will remind you. Um, and so so these are some of the influences. And he said the way these women taught him how to interact with young people in a learning environment, the way they protected his feelings, the way they supervised him and taught him how to learn beyond what was in the book, though that had an influence on his coaching as much as some of the greatest basketball minds ever, like Red Arping and Dean Smith, who also were his mentors. But the foundation of who he was and what he did really came from Black women such as, such as Sametta Wallace-Jackson and Dr. Anita Hughes. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention Boys Club Number 2 in the district, which is where he grew up, and Jabo Kenner, Mr. Henry Butler, and Julius Wyatt. These were his mentors also. This foundation of Blackness is what he got all of his work from. Yeah, can't wait to read so much more and get into detail and in, in all of these facts about Coach Thompson. And something that it seems as if whenever we talk about his legacy and what he accomplished, uh, we go straight to coaching. But he did win those two championships with the Celtics. He did play at Providence where he led them in field goal percentage and scoring. I mean, let's throw some respect on his name as a player as well. Um, does he t does he talk about that often or is that just so much as, as part of his past and not as as part of how he became a great coach? Because I just think that's when I found that out about him, I was an adult working in the business, <laughs> you know, sure. all these years knowing him as a coach, but not knowing him as a player. Yeah, that's a great question, Chris, because I didn't either. And I knew a lot about Coach Thompson, but I didn't know much about him as a player. And when I went and did the research. So, number one, he came out of D.C. as one of the. Uh, most highly recruited players in the city and perhaps the country, you know? Um, and uh, he, his team won 55 games in a row uh, his last two years, two, three years there. So that's for real, for real. Um, highly recruited and then went to Providence where in a senior year, they won a national championship. Back in those days, the NIT was the national championship. Won a national championship and this man averaged 26 and 16. Okay, all American. Drafted for the Celtics. And so as I'm going over this, you know, and coach was a, uh, he never really bragged about his basketball compliments, although in the Dapper Dan, which at that time was the national uh, was equivalent to the McDonald's All-American game. He was like, hey, I had 26 points. Let's not forget. I, I gave him 26 in the, in the Dapper Dan. 
you know? And his Ronnie and them like the kid would be like, really, Pop? You sure? I don't know if you remember right. He'd be like, hey. <laughs> <You know? laughs> he said, Connie Hawkins came at halftime and gave sword 17, but I had 26. So when he went to the Celtics, he was a member of one of the greatest teams of all time. Winners of, I don't know how many championships in a row, right in the middle of that, that run. But, you know, it was funny when we started talking about it, he started saying, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, I was on the Celtics, but, uh, you know, and he would sort of start grumbling. I was like trying to figure it out. It's like, what's up, coach? He was like, yeah, you know, I never got in the damn game. I was like, what are you talking about? He said, man, Bill Russell never came out. And I was like, oh, so here's the thing. Coach was one of the best players in the country in college. Coach was All-American, national champion, all-time leading scorer at Providence. But when he got to the Celtics, he was Bill Russell's backup. And back then, there wasn't no load management. When he said Bill Russell didn't come out the game, he meant that literally. You know, I mean, if you look on the internet and see these stats, they went seven games in the playoffs against Will Chamberlain and them. Seven games, Bill Russell played all but one minute, literally. So coach was grumbling. I did look on the internet and I was like, coach, man, the internet says your, your rookie year, you know, you average 10 minutes a game, five points, five rebounds. He said, I don't care what the internet says. That's a damn lie. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's like five and five it's not 26 man <laughs> so i think it, but he accepted his role and he understood it this was a championship team he said i was playing against the greatest winner in the history of basketball he always said that bill russell had 11 rings for 10 fingers um so he got it i think it did eat at him a little bit because he knew what he could do on the court i mean the man was 6 11 with game prototypical you know, a stretch four at this time. Um, but he didn't really get to fully express that in the NBA. However, I think that we have come to accept and appreciate the fact that his real gift was in coaching. Yeah, sometimes some of the things you want to do, uh, that door doesn't remain open for you and it leads to a legendary career. And we're thankful for that with John Thompson. Um, another thing that I've really intrigued about is you on this particular project, because I know your history and, you know, Yale graduate, intelligent uh, uh, author and, and all those things. But Coach Thompson is a very closed individual. So how did you gain that access and most importantly, that trust to get to, to pen his autobiography? It took a while. Um, you know, one time we were probably about three, four months into it. And I just said, Coach, I got all these recordings, you know, when we have a talk. Um, you know, your you and your family should have them at some point. You want me to give them to you as I go along or you want me to give them to you uh, all at the end? We're probably three months into and he thought he said, yeah, you should probably give them to me now because, you know, I don't know. I might have to get rid of you. <laughs> 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 and he was joking, but it was real at the same time. You know, if I didn't do a good job, then, you know, you never know um, where the trust came from. Yes, he was a private individual. It took him a while to get into the spirit of opening up. He lived his whole life with the wall up in order for, to protect his players, to protect himself from a tremendous amount of abuse. America was not ready for a black man like John Thompson in 1972, in 1982, and, and you know maybe not in 1999 when he retired. So in order to maintain his dignity and his purpose, he had to have the wall up. It was not easy to let it down. But I think when I gained his trust was when we started writing and he would give the writing to people who he really cared about. Um, his, his, his son, John, his son, Ronnie, his daughter, Tiffany, other people who were close to him. And they said, dad, this sounds like you. You know, when he said, all right, this kid, Jesse, and he always used to make fun of me for going to Yale. And I was like, but you sent your son, your, your son, Ron, John to Princeton. 
yeah, y'all Ivy League MFers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so once he saw that I could deliver his message in his voice and it sounded like him and the people who he trusted said it sounded like him, then he was like, all right, we might keep you around, Jess. You know, you might make it. <laughs> hey, hey, Jess. So uh, our producer, Andre Jones, who had his own special relationship with Coach and, and definitely Ronnie and, and John and, uh, and John. So he had a particular question that he wanted to ask. Why was there not more cursing in the book, especially since Coach, you know, doesn't, didn't mind laying down a few, uh, you know, profanity-laden tirades upon occasion. And I, I overheard a few, uh, you know, playing against him uh, when we played Georgetown when I was at UVA. So why was there not more cursing in the book, uh, especially since he has an affinity for a particular word? Uh, you know, that was the question from our, our, our producer, Andre Jones. Indeed, man. It took me a while to figure that out. So when we were talking, we would just talk and he would let loose. And, uh, and then I would be writing. And so I said to myself, okay, you know, I gotta, I gotta sort of sprinkle it in here. Um, and, you know, a lot of us, coach Thompson was the epitome of somebody who could flow in any situation. I mean, this man met every president from Gerald Ford on in, you know, on down. And so he could flow like that. He could get up on television and be erudite and articulate. And then if he was a boys club, number two, boom, it was like that. And we love that, you know, and I wanted to bring that side out. But as we went through the drafts of the book, he would repeatedly tell me, Jesse, there's too much profanity in here, man. We got to do something about that. And I'd be like, <laughs> like <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, Coach, that's you. <laughs> so I would take some out and then he would tell me again and I would take some out and he would tell me again. And uh, so what I figured out eventually was that he was very concerned with young people reading the book and he knew that there had to be some in there. But he he also viewed this book as him sort of like like speaking to a wide audience. And in that case, if he's on television or if he's given a address at Georgetown or something like that, he's not going to use that type of language. So we had to figure out the balance. And at the end of the day, he was happy with the balance. But we carefully considered every use of his favorite word. I'm going to tell you one that came out. Uh, this is this is breaking news. What do we got? The siren. There it is. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. So he was talking about AI, and he said that one of the things that really impressed him about Iverson was that he was watching on television when he unjustly was convicted and went to jail. And he said, and he says it in the book. You know, if they had taken me away to jail for 15 years when I didn't do nothing, I would have been screaming and hollering. But Allen showed no type of emotion. He didn't complain. He just took it on the chin and had a just had a very serious demeanor. He was like, and he said, man, I watched that and thought, what kind of cold MFR is this? <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's in the book. And at the very end of our process, when we're going along, and I think that they were too close together because he also says in his book that the first time he met Alan Iverson, he gave him a speech about if you come to Georgetown, X, Y, Z. And he said later, Alan said, I never heard a man use MF for more than I did in that conversation. So I think there was too many in a close spot. So as far as what kind of cold MF is this, uh, Coach Thompson was like, yeah, why don't you take that one out, Jesse? So, um, <laughs> but we still gave him the, you know, the readers will know that he could use that word how and when he wanted to. So Jesse, when I think about coach, you 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 just touched on a few things. You touched on a lot of things, a lot of great things. I'm I'm so intrigued to read this book. 
But, you know, when I think about Coach, you know, he represents, he really is represent, representative of D.C. basketball, right? So this is the, the, the heart and soul of D.C. We go hard, we're in your face, you know, this whole deal. So he's not scared to step out and walk or, or off the court on a game about Proposition 48 and how it's, you know, unjust to African-Americans and people of color. He's not scared to take on the challenges of a convicted, you know, young man down in Fort Smith, uh, Virginia, uh, down in, in the Tidewater area and bring him into Georgetown in the fold to wrap his arms around him and say, if nobody else is going to look out for you, we will. You know, he's not scared to bring in a drug kingpin and have a conversation with this man face to face to talk about how you need to separate yourself from our program. But in the quiet parts of his mind, obviously he was concerned about a few things. Did you ever pick up something from coach that, you know what, there is something that I do fear because from the outside, we just look like he doesn't fear anything. Mm. But did you pick up anything in your conversations that this is something that I do fear? Doesn't sound like it's death. Doesn't sound like it's, you know, was there anything that you got from that conversation? Hmm. That's a great question. And I'm very hesitant. I'm going to answer it, although I'm hesitant to interpret coach because the whole reason why he wrote the book was so he could say, hey, this is who I am. He does mention be in his book of being afraid of a few things or at certain moments. With Proposition 42, when he walked out, he says, I was scared. I was scared of what might happen because I didn't know it could bounce back on me some way. The, the school might be hurt. My, my players might lose an opportunity. So I think that if you read between the lines of the book and we interpret what Coach said about himself is that one of the things that drove him was the fear that he would let his kids down, that he would bring a kid in and was, wouldn't able to properly, be able to properly motivate him to get him to graduate. Uh, he knew that he carried a burden for Black people and that, you know how it is, man. Uh, if one Black person messes up, that applies to all of us, all 48 million of us in the United States. He knew that. So I think that there, there were some fears of, I have to do this right. I have to win. I'm one of the first black coaches at a predominantly white school. If I don't win, they're not going to give anybody else another chance. You know, it's going to take a long time. Um, if my kids mess up or get in the news, then, uh, you know, they're going to look at all of us as not deserving these opportunities. I think those are the things that he was afraid of, but he harnessed that fear and used it to succeed. How much of that played into the Rafael Edmonds situation in this sense that there's so much fact and fiction to this? Like, we know that the meeting happened, but just the motivation behind it. I mean, you're talking about 1988, in which if you look at any crime statistic in Washington, D.C., they're calling it, you know, the murder capital of the United States. So it's not as if, oh, the head coach at Georgetown is someone that can't be harmed. Um, fact from fiction, how intense was that meeting uh, between John Thompson and one of the most notorious drug dealers in one of the most notorious times in Washington, D.C.? Extremely tense. And Coach really captures it when he describes the meeting. You know, uh, I mean, his program could have crumbled. You know, I mean, think about how many people who hated John Thompson, who falsely portrayed him as this, that, and the third, wanted to see him go down and would use something like that to to take him out, you know, a, your players are hanging out with a drug dealer, somebody like this, who's got, you know, alleged, all these alleged crimes. Like, so he says in his book, it was extremely tense. There was a lot at stake. 
and he had to solve the problem, you know, and, and the number one reason he had to solve the problem was to help his kids. Cause these guys, you know, your future could be ruined. This is Alonzo morning. We're talking about like, what if Alonzo had gotten caught up a little bit too much? We would never have the great humanitarian and NBA champion. I mean, Alonzo has helped a lot of lives um, beyond what he's done on the basketball court. So I think it was extremely tense, but at the same time, coach was ready. I mean, you know, he had been through the fire and this is, you know, in a lot of ways, that was the moment he was made for. And I'm going to let the readers separate fact from fiction in terms of the legend of what he did. What he didn't do is threaten this man because he was too smart to, to threaten somebody like Rayful Edmund. But um, it was such a profound statement of who Coach was, how he approached his problems, how he would step in front of a bullet for his kids. You know, I hope everybody gets as much out of the story as I did. Yeah, and that's a fact, and it created this mythical creature that, in fiction, we saw in that movie uh, Above the Rim as far as John Thompson representing uh, a kid getting out of that kind of situation. Who else is he going to play for other than John Thompson at Georgetown? You know, it's it just full circle, his legacy. It's just going to live on for, an, uh, for a long time, especially with everyone being able to hear his words in his books. Right, right Ted? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, the iconic figure that he has been, he, you know, he challenged himself in the greatest high school conference in the country coming out of Carroll High School. Uh, you know, he goes on to win a NIT championship or national championship at the time. Chris knows, Jesse, that was a little bit of a shot. Uh, because I played in that same conference, and I'm, 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 I'm throwing, I'm throwing jabs at the New York City, the, the New York hey. City folks on here. So, you know, but no, not you know, Chris is absolutely right. You know, this guy is deserving of all praise. Um, that I'm sure your book, uh, lords and and uh, you know what, I'm just so excited that it's being captured by another brother, um, and it's going to be done uh, giving him justice. You know, Thanks, give, man. Give and it's. Let's give Coach a little bit of district props. This is something that he mentioned a couple of times in the course of writing the book, and it's in there. He said, I'm not sure how many other people in the great history of D.C. have won championships in junior high school, high school, college, NBA, Olympics, and an NCAA championship. I mean, come well, on now. Think about that. It's only him. because <laughs> He's the only one. Yeah. We don't have to look into that. We know that as a fact. That's one too many things to accomplish for anyone else to be on that list. Uh, I Came as a Shadow, the autobiography of John Thompson, uh, written by Jesse Washington. We appreciate you stepping to the mic. And I got to get one of those T-shirts, man. Uh, I, I, I hey, see I, what I, you I rock. in Harlem, bro. I got this in Harlem, fam. So it's in your, in your neighborhood. Yeah, you got a Harlem guy behind you, too, and John Carlos. Many people don't know that about him. But, Jesse Washington, we appreciate your time, and we appreciate you taking the effort to to go through this and, and write this book. Thanks, man. And I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you on behalf of Coach Thompson. And he's looking down right now at young brothers such as you guys, young, you know, accomplishing things, doing things intellectually, succeeding with your minds. He's very proud of y'all, and he's proud to have his book represented on your podcast. Thank you.